Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. From the Nifty Radio Recording Studios, high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of uptown downtown Albany, welcome to this week's edition of the Nifty Practice Tips. Thank you, Johnny, and welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Nifty Practice Tips. It's great to be back with you. And today we have an important subject, dealing with pleas. Now, when a defendant pleads guilty, the only remaining procedure in the case should be the imposition of the agreed-upon sentence. This, however, is not always the reality. Defendants continually appeal agreed-upon pleas and sentences and are often successful in having the pleas vacated or the sentence modified. Now, here's some of the most common areas where errors on the part of the people, the court, or both resulted in these successful appeals by the defense. When a defendant pleads guilty post-indictment to multiple lesser crimes and has agreed to be sentenced to consecutive terms of imprisonment, the allocution must reflect facts which justify the sentences being run consecutively. The requirement can be overlooked due to the fact that there are different allocution requirements when a defendant is pleading guilty to a single crime or to multiple crimes where the sentences are to run concurrently. Now, in these latter situations, the allocution is not required to include the specific facts as to all the elements of the crime. In the case of People v. Johnson, Court of Appeals decision, the court wrote, although the entire allocution was unnecessary, and although even if it were, we would not require that it prove every element of the crime charged. In a similar case from the Court of Appeals, People v. Goldstein from 2009, the court wrote, but an allocution based on a negotiated plea need not elicit from a defendant specific admissions as to each element of the charged crime. Nor is the court's duty to inquire further, triggered merely by the failure of a pleading defendant, whether or not represented by counsel, to rectify every element of the crime pleaded to. Indeed, no catechism is required in connection with the acceptance of a plea, and we have refused to disturb by canny defendants, even when they are absolutely no elicitation of the underlying facts of the crime. It is enough that the allocution shows that the defendant understood the charges and was made aware and understood the charges and made an intelligent decision to enter the plea. Now, these decisions and others just like them do not apply in cases where the defendant is pleading guilty to multiple crimes and is to be given consecutive sentences. In such situations, the allocution must factually justify consecutive sentencing. The first point in this is that despite agreeing to the plea and to the consecutive sentencing procedure, the defendant still has the right to challenge the insufficiency of the allocution. That's a holding in the Court of Appeals in 1996 in the case of People v. Laureano. Now, in the case of People v. Goodman, the defendant was initially sentenced to consecutive sentences of incarceration for his guilty plea to assault in the second degree and attempted criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree. The defendant appealed the judgment, claiming 
the allocution was insufficient because there were no facts adduced at the plea to establish that he attempted to possess the firearm before he formed the intent to commit the assault with the weapon. On appeal, the people conceded the issue. That's how clear-cut it was. The sentences were modified to run concurrently. Now note, the case was not remanded for a new allocution and sentencing to fulfill the original agreement. The sentences were modified to run concurrently, and that was the end of the litigation. Originally, the defendant was to be sentenced to a total of 12 years plus post-release supervision. As a result of this successful appeal, the sentence was reduced to a total of six years, two six-year sentences to run concurrently instead of originally agreed upon consecutively. In the case of People v. Dean, another Court of Appeals decision from 2007, the imposition of consecutive sentences was found to be error due to the insufficiency of the facts, both in the indictment and the plea allocution to support such sentencing. The court wrote, as the people did not include the date and time of each of the allegedly separate acts of downloading the digital images set forth in the indictment, or include such facts in the defendant's plea allocution, the court was without authority to impose consecutive sentences. So the bottom line to this is, when a defendant pleads guilty to a lesser crime or crimes to satisfy an indictment and will be sentenced to a single sentence or concurrent sentences, the court, quote, need not elicit from the defendant specific admissions as to each element of the charged crimes. However, when the defendant is to receive consecutive sentences for pleas to multiple crimes, the allocution must factually justify the imposition of consecutive sentences. Now, our next point deals with post-indictment. When the defendant is in a post-indictment position, he or she is permitted to plead guilty to crimes, in quotes, that do not exist and for which a defendant could not be tried. For example, a defendant is permitted to plead guilty to an attempt to commit a reckless assault. A defendant could not be convicted at trial for this fictional crime because it is impossible to attempt to commit a crime for which there was an unintended result. See the case of People v. Campbell from Court of Appeals, which is the cornerstone in this entire area of plea practice. Now, another example is found in the case of People v. Foster, a 1967 Court of Appeals decision. In this case, the Court of Appeals approved of a plea to attempted reckless manslaughter, another non-existent crime. Now, when determining whether a crime is considered a lesser-included offense for plea purposes, you may use the various crimes identified in CPL 220.20, most of which are not considered to be lesser-included offenses for purposes of charging them at trial. CPL 220.20 Subdivision 2 specifically explains that this statute is only applicable to pleas. Now, when looking for what is considered a lesser-included offense that can be added at trial, you must use the definitions found in CPL 1.20 and also CPL 300.50. Our next point deals with the new law. Under the old speedy trial law, cases such as People v. Suarez and People v. DiRafael, both Court of Appeals decision from 1982, 
A defendant who pled guilty after a denial of a speedy trial motion to dismiss waived his or her right to challenge the correctness of that ruling by the court. Now, pursuant to the new speedy trial law, effective January 1st of 2020, Penal Law 3030, Subdivision 6, such a plea does not waive the defendant's right to challenge on appeal the court's decision on the defendant's 3030 motion. However, it has been held that the defendant may waive his or her right to appeal this court's decision on the speedy trial motion. Take a look at the case of People v. Person from the First Department, 611-2020, with leave denied on August 31st of this year. Also, we have available for you the People's Brief as well on this case. And finally, number four, once a defendant has been indicted, a superior court information can no longer be drawn up to charge a crime to which the defendant is willing to plead guilty that is not found in the indictment and is not a lesser charge, a lesser included charge permitted to be added to the indictment for plea purposes. Now, an SCI requires that there exists an unsatisfied criminal court complaint upon which the SCI must be based. Now, once there's an indictment, the criminal court complaint no longer exists. So the only way to bring about this intended result is to rearrest the defendant for the needed charge, have the defendant arraigned on the new complaint, and then draw up an SCI based on this new complaint to which the defendant is now going to plead. For example, a defendant is charged with a robbery, but staunchly sticks to the position, I assaulted that person, I never robbed them of anything, I will not plead guilty to a robbery, and there are no assault charges in the indictment, and there are no real lesser included offenses to add, arguably even under the most liberal approach of 220.20. So what you need to do is rearrest the defendant on the assault charges, draw up the complaint, arraign the defendant, and then you may draw up an SCI based on that unsatisfied criminal court complaint for the assault, and it's upon that SCI that a proper plea can be taken. So please, take a look at the case of People v. Boston, a Court of Appeals decision from 1990, and understand that this is not a waivable issue. This is a jurisdictional defect that even if the defense totally agrees to go along with everything you'd like to do that's improper, they can still appeal it down the road. So that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We, of course, appreciate the great work done by our crack producer and man about town, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. We hope all of you are well and that you are getting back into your trial mode. And to all of you out there, be well and get ready, my friends. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. 